Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of sound and radio. My name is Paul Reesmandel. Hello, everybody. It's Eric Klein here today. And I'm Jennifer Waits. Glad to have you back here, Jennifer, all three of us together on the show. It's been a number of weeks since we've had the opportunity to all be together between our our various travels. Jennifer, you were recently in Hawaii on the island of Maui. Yes. And so amazing. We're, we're going to tease everybody. We're not talking about it on today's show, but next week's show, we'll be learning about some really interesting and great community radio stations on that island. Because, you know, I couldn't go to Hawaii without seeing radio stations. <laughs> yeah, and you, you, you stumbled upon a, a radio station that was entirely, I want to say student run, but a, youth. a youth-oriented radio station where youth make all of the radio. Young people. Yeah. I know. So next week, Juveniles. that'll be so fun. Um, I even dragged my own youth there. So. <laughs> Very cool. And then, you know, I, I traveled to the podcast movement conference. It's something which has been happening. I heard early. it was extremely... Uh, Extremely extreme. A, a lot of movement. It, it, pot, you know, podcast movement started small when podcasts 3, were small. Thousand people were there. I understand. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Some of the uh, learnings and insights about this uh, thing we call podcasting, and and you know, relating it, of course, always in our interest to community radio, community yes. podcasters, people who have this grassroots outlook. I think there are nevertheless some takeaways, not just all the burblings at the industry level, of course, is where I work, uh, literally as my day-to-day job, but I always like to keep, uh, obviously, because doing Radio Survivor here, I like to keep a finger on the pulse of what's relevant to the community-minded folks as well. Not to say the two are mutually exclusive, but, uh, you know, sometimes they have different Some community podcasts can uh, make money. Okay, exactly. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um First up, though, Jennifer, you have an announcement here that uh, you'd like to share. Yes, it's really exciting. The Radio Preservation Task Force, which is a project of the Library of Congress, they've announced a call for papers for an upcoming conference that they're holding in October 2020. Right. And, and I sh- but Jennifer, I want to interrupt you just to unpack for some listeners who haven't been with us uh, every episode to, to learn about the Radio Preservation Task Force is this project seeks in sort of a, a organized and official way to do the work to get people to start to think about radio as a medium that needs preservation so that we can hear uh, so that future historians, but also just anybody in, in on the earth can still hear radio from the past, even, uh, even as the years go by. And so right. a, a, yes. a task force needed to be organized to sort of start right. to, to set up yeah, recognizing the urgency of of recordings being endangered and and making you know an official effort. So this project's been going on for a while, and this will be the third conference held by the Radio Preservation Task Force. The theme this time around is a century of broadcasting preservation and renewal, and it's happening October twenty second to twenty fourth at the Library of Congress in Washington D.C. So so yeah, just. The announcement is that now they have opened a call for papers, so they're inviting people to submit proposals for papers, panels, presentations, workshops. So if you have a brewing idea about radio history and preservation, they would like to know about it. Uh, and it's, 
it's a great opportunity. At the past few conferences, there have been a wide variety of, of folks there from scholars to more am- amateur preservationists. And I think that they enjoy having these conversations taking place across a wide variety of people who are interested in radio history. That was going to be my question. Is that is this only for people who are current faculty you know, at a university or college? But it sounds like, no, it, you could be somebody who is working on a project at a, at a radio station currently, an archiving project, and would like to share some of the results or some of the things they've learned, uh, you don't have to have a PhD uh, in order to attend. Right. No, yes. And there, and there are plenty of independent scholars who have taken part, uh, as well as they're interested in knowing how people are using archival and historic materials. Right. So if you have an interesting project where, I mean, I think about even some of the work we're doing on Radio Survivor, where we like to help bring some of these archival recordings to life on the podcast and on the radio show, those sorts of projects are of interest to them as well. So I think they're open to creative proposals. It's it's quite a lengthy call for papers. We've posted it in its entirety on radiosurvivor.com. So you can peruse that at your leisure. Great. And folks have until December 1st of this year, 2019, to put in their proposal. Yeah, I want to put in a plug for episode 192 of the Radio Survivor podcast and radio show. On episode 192, we had the pleasure to sit down with Josh Shepard and Neil Verma, who both work at the Radio Preservation Task Force. And uh, it, it was just such, it was a good, it was a good conversation about sort of the philosophy not necessarily the nuts and bolts or the the getting into the weeds and the wonkiness of preserving radio but the but the but the the love behind wanting to keep these sounds around for the future so that they can still be heard uh, i really enjoyed the conversation that we had so episode number 192 of radio survivor radiosurvivor.com/podcast is where you can find that and the, in that episode we they gave a brief tease for that conference. So yeah. it's exciting to now have have further details to share. Absolutely. And we want to have a little follow-up. Uh, Eric and I had a conversation uh, two episodes ago, number 206. <laughs> uh, overall, the conversation w- was about podcasting and how uh, community media in particular fits into the landscape as it's growing, as the audience grows and the the apparent amount of money coming into, into the uh, platform grows. And... You know, we kept using the word pioneer. Only once or twice. (laughs) And Eric, well, you you called it out immediately almost because it's a real colonialist history to this word. And we were searching for Uh, what's a better word to use. You know, the first time that someone pointed out that pioneer was a strange word to use uh, was um, uh, when certain uh, white middle class people would move into a neighborhood. Mm. They were considered pioneers in the 80s. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember hearing the word uncritically in the 80s and 90s. Uh, a lot of articles have been written very recently, as well as I just heard a late night television show host introduce one of their guests. At, uh, uh, the word pioneer has been used to label certain podcast creators uh, because they're originators of a style or they're mm-hmm. successful before anyone else is successful. And so the word the word is useful, but then, yeah, the, the context, the history of the word is a little bit uh, fraught with with uh, a whole lot of garbage. So we got better words. Yeah, we, we sent we said the call. Yeah, we, 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 asked we asked listeners. I mean, we love to hear from you. Podcast at RadioSurvivor.com. Uh, listener Pat Flanagan wrote in 
and said uh, suggested the word pathfinder. Yeah. They write, uh, one may look for new paths anywhere, even in the ether. Wow. Uh, I I really like this word, uh, this idea of thinking about a new pathfinders, right? Because it doesn't even necessarily mean that you're on a territory that's that no one has ever been on. Yeah, you're you, you can yeah you, you're not doing it first, but you're finding your own path. Exactly, I, and and that sometimes creativity is about eye. finding uh, a way to go between two places, right? Sometimes that's a, cre- a there's a creative path around a problem podcast pathfinder that it's is not our new bad. word i well, think we like it paul paul has settled upon it i'm still willing to okay. to take uh to take more information from the listeners I, I we you know if i hear paul use it 10 times and it starts to make sense to me i'll uh, i'll start using it too podcast pathfinder we'd love to know what you think about it please let us know drop us a line by email podcast at radio survivor dot com as uh pat and other listeners have learned recently we answer real we actually answer our emails we really read them we love to hear from you um of course we're on social media if you want to tweet at us or uh you want to get us on facebook we, we we're real people uh we're yeah. not a brand and uh we love we love to talk back with we are you. not a machine we are, we are not a machine we're not a bot we are not an ai uh we we are we're really here, flesh and blood for the time being, at the very least. Um, yeah, thank you, Pat, for sending that in. And Jennifer, you recently had the opportunity as well to be there for the launch of a new community radio station in San Francisco, which which is momentous. Actually, it's momentous because it's a it's a very dense urban area with a very dense radio dial so the opportunity to place new community radio stations on that radio dial is very new um and there still aren't very many opportunities so what station uh is going on the air there in san francisco yeah it's the station from the san francisco public press and they were one of the many 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 nonprofit groups that applied for a new low-power FM radio license in San Francisco. And the SF Public Press, they do community journalism, right? Uh, Well, yeah, they have a print newspaper, and so it's a news-focused organization focused on San Francisco. Yeah. And, And so in 2013, they were one of the dozens of people applying, and they ended up in a tie with... San Francisco Community Radio, which was folks from, there were folks who used to be at KUSF FM. And so that station, KXSF LP from San Francisco Community Radio, that launched on the air about a year ago. And San Francisco Public Press has still been working on getting on the air. So they are the second half <laughs> to the signal in San Francisco at That's 102, 102.5. FM and longtime radio survivor readers and listeners will, of course, know all about KUSF. But in case you're brand new uh, to our voices, this was a really special uh, community-oriented college radio station in the San Francisco Bay Area that uh, lost its license, and Jennifer covered that story. In sold its license. Yeah, yeah. Gave, the, the, the gave university it away. that owned it sold <laughs> the, the license. The community lost a license. The university. Uh, uh, earned a profit from selling it. And uh, the station that was really beloved by everybody 
uh, who listened to it and who helped make it, I actually had an opportunity to tour it once when I was a young uh, journalism uh, maker, a radio maker. So I have my own opinions about what a cool place it was. Uh, they never gave up the dream of getting back on the radio. And so that's that's kind of uh, yeah, a, a part was... of this new station. Yeah, that that group of people work to fight the license sale, and then they work to apply for a new low power FM license. And as I always have to say, at, at so this was a station at University of San Francisco KUSF FM. They do have an online only station uh, run by students that is doing quite well. So so radio is not lost at University of San Francisco, but a lot of the longtime radio people who enjoy doing FM radio there have moved on and are at San Francisco Community Radio, and they're very happy to be back on the airwaves over low-power FM. So, so they've been plugging along for half of the broadcast day, and now they have partners on that signal from San Francisco Public Press, and... And so, yeah, I, I was really happy to be able to go to a launch event that they held in August. And it was it was also the launch for their their first public affairs show, which they're calling Civic. And mm. much like San Francisco Public Press, it's focused on San Francisco-oriented topics. And that's going to be airing five days a week. So it was a, a launch party for the show and for the station, which which they're saying is in startup mode at the moment as they're continuing to develop their programming schedule. So it was it was a bit of a preview and and they had a live interview on stage where they they did a live interview with people from SF Muni Diaries, which is a really cool website uh, where Transit people oriented website. Yeah, they share their tales, often humorous tales about Tragic. public transportation in San Francisco. So so it was a fun interview about that, and a portion of that will be used in a future episode of Civic. So we got a little taste of that. And uh, there were all sorts of familiar community radio people in attendance at this event, and everybody was very excited to hear that they'd gotten on the air because, you know, as you might imagine, at this point in 2019, there aren't too many stations left from that 2013 LPFM application window who have yet to get on the air. So uh, this, right? You know, it was quite an accomplishment to to get to that point with with obviously a number of hurdles and challenges along the way. And again, for Radio Survivor uh, super fans, this will be old hat. But for our new listeners, uh, low power FM is a is a kind of community radio that that uh, was made possible by some activism in the 90s. And there were two distinct windows. And those that, that time period, that era of new stations coming into cities around the United States um, has a beginning, a middle, and an ending. And we are, for as, as near as we could tell, Radio Survivor doesn't like making grandiose... Uh, we don't want to talk about who's first and who's last... Uh, without without having a caveat that there's always the possibility of change or some information that we're not aware of, but it seems like we're at the end. We're getting there, yeah. So of the, low power FM coming to the United States. Well, 
I mean, to the best of our knowledge. Yeah. So what? So there was a window that ran in 2000. A window is like the specifically defined period where you can uh, submit an application for a low power FM station. It's not like any time you feel like you can just submit an application. It's not like a driver's license. Uh, There are times when you can submit your application to the FCC. Which is different than I'm about to open up a can of worms and I apologize. That's different than how other stations can no that's not that's not true those are any windows longer. as well too so fascinating yes. uh, so uh the fcc moved to this windowing format okay in in sort of the late 90s prior to that it was true you you could apply for a station if you thought it could go on the air and you could prove it to the fcc with the engineering study you could make an application right. and of course back then this would be a You're, huge undertaking, big business. Well, but, there was well. I mean, nonprofits could do it, but they would need and to they be did. well funded. Well, no, they were just they could. There were no low power FM stations, yeah. right? I mean, it, it, the stakes were different. Is the all I can really say. Yeah, in the past. Yes, right. The stakes were different. Low. I mean, that's how community radio stations got on the air prior to 2000. They existed, um, and some of them got on the air in, during this time when you could sort of apply at any point but towards the late 90s i don't know the exact date the fcc moved to this windowing format mm-hmm. so now even if you want to apply for a new full power non-commercial or a translator station which is a uh, low power repeater station or a full-on commercial station you have to apply during a window and a part of that is because um there's less and less space on the dial so it, it, it'll it sort of evens out the playing field Right, uh, where people are competing a little bit more equal to equal, ah, rather than yeah. than first mover advantage. This has all kind of come back around for our uh, conversation a little bit later in today's episode, where we talk about podcasts, right. because there is no windows for right. podcasts. There are no windows for because podcasts because there's because the turf is wide open. The internet is not going to fill up anytime. We hope not. How could the internet fill up? They well, would have to really you could redesign run out of numbers. Um, <laughs> and uh, so there was a, the first window in the two in two thousand. Those stations began FM to go on the air through radio, through a good yeah. portion of that decade. Uh, the second window happened in twenty thirteen, and so it has been since January twenty fourteen to present that stations have gone on air and and stations you know have been able to get sometimes extensions from the FCC right. because they've run into problems or in some cases uh especially in cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles where you had many engineering challenges well you have engineering challenges but in particular you had oh, many yeah, people right. competing for a single frequency which we've talked about on Radio Survivor they really had to sort out maybe a dozen different applications and decide who would get it and in some cases like is the case here in San Francisco they decided that two organizations would get the frequency and share the time on it but sorting all of that out and then you know when you're waiting for the FCC to tell you whether you can get the station or not you know, you might also then have leases on buildings, opportunities for a place to build a transmitter tower that maybe fall through or change yeah. in, yeah, in, in the intervening years. Yeah, because so much changes. Years. Yeah, so much can change in those five years. And in cities like San Francisco, and I remember uh, talking to folks in Chicago about similar similar issues there where you also have to deal with city paperwork yeah. for <laughs> which might take longer than you anticipated. Yes, yeah, so, some cities uh, some cities are more famous than others for for being good at that kind for of for bureaucracy. Yeah. Of course, all of this yes. is exciting to us at Radio Survivor because these low power FM stations which came into being during these two windows in the last uh, 10 or 20 years is the one of the largest flowering of community radio that we've ever seen mm-hmm. certainly in our lifetime. All these 
unique. And it was very little before our lifetime. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> Just pointing that out. Depends it, on whose who's lifetime. Uh, well, and we also didn't anticipate that we would have them in urban areas like yeah, San Francisco. Yeah. So that's really exciting. But, but I do need to note, we do not know that this is the last... We're just getting somewhere close so to the So what has happened here? Right, well, yeah. uh, to just to put to make it specific, right? We're getting towards the end of the licenses that have been assigned during that 2013 window. There could be another window. There, there, there's no reason why there can't be another window that the FCC would not open it up. I don't think anyone at the FCC says said it won't happen. Oh, interesting. Right. So we don't. What what the FCC has to do is to decide. You know. Uh, what where it's going to proceed with regard to licensing any additional stations on the FM dial in a lot of places like San Francisco, New York, Chicago, there's a declining amount of space. There's plenty of places in the United States where there's still plenty yeah. of space. One of my favorite low power FM radio stations I I've ever had the opportunity to know about was out in rural Oregon. I was yes. driving around and I did, and I learned about this station and I had the opportunity you to You saw visit. a billboard. Yeah, I, they put up a billboard, I tuned it in. I found out it was a low power FM station, which was exciting because I didn't even think of those as being uh things you could hear while driving through a place because they're so site specific, but their antenna was up on a hill and there in rural Oregon, this low power FM radio station was I don't know the, the exact number, but there wasn't a lot on the dial out there yeah. at all, especially on the FM yeah. dial. And and as far as community radio goes, there was nothing. Yeah. So, there, so, th- so you know, there's low still... Low Power FM can do a lot for a community. Still the potential, uh, but we, what we don't know, what has not been indicated to us, is when such a licensing window might happen. Uh, so, you know, it's not a matter of... It, it won't happen so much as we don't know. And people write us regularly asking us, uh, asking radio survivor asking for us radio advice. What, you know, how can I get a station? What can I do? And, you know, and, and, and our typical advice is, well, right now it's unknown when, uh, there will be another licensing window. If you're looking for low power FM, if you want another sort of license, a full power license, the way you get it is you purchase it from somebody who owns it. Mm. So, and in, in, in a metro area, that probably requires seven figures. In uh, some place more rural, maybe uh, less expensive, but that's what it would require. You cannot purchase a low power FM license, and they so we are not often say on the market they are not on the market. So yeah. what we often say is that uh, what you can do though is look for the low power FM stations in your area because they likely need help. Yeah, the low power FM that I visited in rural Oregon had a uh, unpaid staff of four. Yeah. So they and might need was, help. They, so they could definitely use a fifth. So maybe it wouldn't be your station outright, but if you're uh, willing to go with the spirit of community radio and lend a hand and and determine uh, what radio should look like in your community together, uh, there are probably opportunities. And one thing I want to know yeah, about... Yeah, I mean, a lot of... Oh, and a lot of them are looking for programming, too. Oh, and, precisely, yes. You know, and back to... This, the new station in San Francisco from the San Francisco Public Press, and I don't think I gave the call letters. It's KSFPLP. I know they're looking for programming from people who are local to San Francisco. So there are plenty of opportunities to get interesting programming on the air if you have programming ideas. Yeah, which is very exciting because I don't, I mean, not everyone who listens to Radio Survivor is or already a community radio producer. It's not easy these days, especially at well-established radio stations, to, uh, you know, there's, there's, not, there's not as many pathways to get on the air 
Yeah, I mean, often you, first station, if it's been around for 25 or 30 years... You might have to wait your turn. You have to wait your turn. You might have to go through a lot to get to that. But here's a great opportunity for someone in San Francisco who would like to be on the radio, yeah. where where I mean, that I, opportunity might be relatively rare. Here's a great new opportunity to, to, yeah. to volunteer at KSFPLP. To get your voice heard, to you get know, your stories told. One thing I wanted to note is it's interesting that, that this station is owned and operated by a nonprofit community journalism outlet. Right, that special. that there's a great uh, uh, pathway for community journalism to get on the air, um, and often you know that's that's a difficult thing for a lot of low power FM stations to do is to build out the ability to do journalism and to do news. And here, you know, you're sort of taking it and flipping it the other way. You already have a news outlet, a news operation, and you're putting a radio station on top of it. And we talked to a station like that. Um, Earlier this year, we talked to folks at the Sanctuary for Independent Media, which is in Troy, New York, upstate New York, where they produced the Hudson Mohawk magazine. And the Sanctuary for Independent Media was pre-existing, is actually was part of the indie media movement, the independent media center movement, uh, beginning in the early 2000s. Um, and when they got their low-power FM station, they built out this daily news program that is staffed entirely by volunteers. Uh, called Hudson Mohawk Magazine. That was episode number yeah. 191. A real 90s indie media success story because uh, I love the fact that they funded the purchase of the of the building with a VHS or DVD that they had produced for Democracy Now! that uh, that successfully sold I don't I don't know the number, but it sold it moved some items and so mm-hmm. and so that 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 fundraising vehicle was enough to give them uh to give them a building where they continue to make radio and thrive. Yeah, and there's still also a community center and a community media operation. That's podcast number 191. Uh, we'll have all these notes in our show notes, which is at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. We're right now in episode number 208. Jennifer, thank you so much for attending that Low Power FM launch party. It's a uh, yeah, uh, how could I not? <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know what an opportunity! I'm excited to uh, to check in on the internet so I can hear the work that they do. I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of well, the SF Public Press, and I'm a fan of uh, of the community that that grew out of KUSF. So it's going to be a good station to to keep so your a, ear a on. So a caveat for the moment is that they're not streaming on the internet yet. So I figured. it's a very exclusive broadcast. You need to be in San Francisco to hear it. And the San Francisco Public Press version of the station, KSFP-LP, is on the air from 4 a.m. to 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. Drive time. Yeah, which makes sense for a news-oriented station. And then KXSF-LP, which is former KUSF folks, they're on during the other hours, so 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. and 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. And And KXSF is is already online. Um, So the plan is to for the San Francisco Public Press to start putting their new talk show, Civic, into a podcast format. So you will be able to listen to that somewhere online. And you are listening to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. Support for Radio Survivor comes from listeners and readers and from Austin Airwaves, itself a supporter of Radio Taboo in Cameroon. Visit Radio Taboo on Facebook for more information about their community radio project and their documentary film debut at the Austin Film Society in Austin, Texas on September 19th. 
I'm Paul Reesmandel, and with me here is Eric Klein. Hello, everybody. And Jennifer Waits. Hello. And I do need to tell everyone, you know, if you have any comments of anything you heard today, please drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And, of course, you can read all about many of the things we talk about at radiosurvivor.com. As I mentioned up at the top of the show, I was recently at the Podcast Movement Conference. It was held in Orlando, August 13th through 16th. No better place to be in the universe in August in Orlando, Florida. I'm being ironic. Yeah, I wasn't sure. <laughs> luckily, little, we were, was it a little steamy? A little, a little steamy. steamy there. Uh, luckily, we were mostly inside a, a very nice conference center and resort. And podcast uh, movement is—it's uh, been around for a number of years, right, Paul? Yes, I believe I, this is, I know nothing this is the about fifth it. edition of it. All I know is what I learn from uh, you know Facebook ads when they come around and yeah. then, and then go away again. Uh, I've never been, and so uh, podcast movement would be uh, so you said five years. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it, it sort of I, I'm assuming based on what I the little bit I know that it was founded uh, in order to um, sort of uh, boost a community of professional podcasters. I would say boost a community of podcasters. It's not it's not about isn't, I always thought it was a little bit about wearing a suit and no. tie and getting a little bit. No, of a no, no. You saw you saw, no, you saw no you saw I wore a suit, uh, but a very uh, no tie. No, I think it is about metaphorical tie a radio. tie. I, no, it is about supporting a community of podcasters, hmm. which includes people who are professionals. It includes people who might you might call semi pros, people who, right. uh, you know, it's a hobby and they make a little bit of money, and people who are in it purely for the love of and want to connect with other people. I think the idea is that you would go and you sharpen your knife, right? This is an opportunity to meet other people, to to maybe learn ways to sharpen your skills, to get inspired, you know, your and, kitchen knife, your, yeah, your cooking knife, yeah, exactly. And yeah. I was gonna say that sounds a little like, a tool. scary, yeah, yes. <laughs> you know. And I think you know what. <laughs> This occurred to me just just the other day. Um, you know, one example, and this example may not wash for a lot of people, but you know, in the music industry, there's something called NAM, right, which is actually like the National Association of Music Manufacturers. And it's a huge conference where you know uh, Fender is there uh, showing off their new guitars. You know, Korg is there showing off new keyboards. But the people in attendance there are both. Amateur musicians, people mm-hmm. who might play in a bar band, people who are semi-pro, as well as names you've heard of, professional musicians from you know who are on the charts, and they all go to learn more about what's you know what what's the new instruments this year, what are the, what's the new technology, yeah, and to shake hands and to, to hand shake out hands. business cards or but they also tapes. I mean a really big a part of it is also going to seminars right? right or going to panels where people might be talking about how do you use Bandcamp. Um, you know what's uh, how do you you know put together a touring rig that fits in the back of a in the in in your trunk? How do you you know in that intersection and and so for many of the people who attend, they it's music is their hobby. It right. may be their passion, but they're not necessarily professional. And for some people, it is their living and a very good living. And I think we can take that same comparison to podcast movement. Yes, many of the people who go are interested in in growing what it is they do, possibly becoming professional at it. But that is not necessary. We can't make that assumption. That's sure. why people go. And so there are different tracks. There was a track all around um, audio fiction. You know, so, so that was definitely a well-attended track. There's one track that's about radio, uh, mostly commercial, but radio stations getting into podcasting. What, what, how can po- radio learn from podcasting? There are tracks about how do you make money and about advertising. Uh, there's tracks about interviewing. 
Um, so there's, I think no matter kind of what you're interested in, it's a place you can go and, and learn and meet other like-minded people. As it turns out, because it's become the biggest kind of uh, convention in podcasting, it is also a place where uh, larger players in the industry go. So uh, my company, Stitcher, is there. We have a booth. There was a booth from I'm gonna Spotify. I'm going to make a joke that five years ago there were no large players in the industry. I mean, but not in, in com- some ways. By the absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, in certain ways, that's absolutely true. It's been, and, it, the, in the last five years, it's that's where oh, it, that's it, where there has become mm-hmm. uh, a legitimate, you know, series of companies that are in the business of podcasting that that buy, sell, and trade. But I see public radio people there. I met community right. radio people there. Um, I meet people who are definitely trying to create community podcasts and had conversations where they're saying, yeah, you know, where we've talked a bunch, you know, it feels like we get left out a little bit because we're not charting nationally, but in Nashville, we're huge, you know, and we're really serving a niche uh, for that community or even heard somebody um, in one session on advertising raise a question. It's like we're actually really big in, in the Dallas area. Though it's not because we do Dallas content, but that's where we know people. How can we sort of expand that mm. that, that that listenership outside of that area, right? And so lots of conversations and, and the opportunity to learn. Um, and it's a great place to kind of take the temperature of where podcasting is right now. And all I can think about are the are the, is is all of the um, all of that heat, all of these mergers and acquisitions. Yes, indeed, but that the, is part of the discussion. But hopefully, there's some other there's some other. It's that should not take up all the oxygen. Even no, if no. it has a little bit of real estate in my brain of who just whose company just got bought by which larger media conglomerate. Yeah, that that's still not really the the main topic of of conversation. And and, it, and every year, you know, it seems like there are more women and people of color both on stage, and also there are more shows being represented by people of color and 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 women. And you know, it's it, it's always interesting for me to be out and just kind of have conversations with people on, on the show for the various kind of mixers and things. Um, I met somebody who created something called the Podcast Brunch Club. Okay. Now, I'd heard of this, but I, I have to admit I hadn't really looked into it. Um, and it is what it sounds like. It's like a book club, but for podcasts. And uh, they started it in Chicago where sounds they like live. Sounds like a good podcast. And they have a podcast yep. as well. Of course they uh, do. And it, it is true. There's a bunch of people who meet once a month for brunch to talk about the podcast they love. Got to well, watch now, those uh, those knives and forks clinking. Exactly. On, on the, well, on I don't the audio think recording. I think they do the podcast somewhere else. Okay, good. Um, Outside of brunch. Yeah, but there's now 60 different cities that have these meetups oh. once a month across six continents. A of, genuine movement. It's a genuine movement, right? And I met this person while. Um, Sitting for a uh, a session on uh, podcast email newsletters. Oh, geez. So the folks up on stage are people who have podcast email newsletters. And I think that the variety... Does Radio Survivor have a podcast email newsletter? Well, we have an email newsletter. It's not specifically about podcasts. Can people read this email newsletter? Yeah, go to radiosurvivor.com and uh, look for the Radio Survivor Bulletin. And get an update every week on what we're what we're covering, um, but these are for people who like really are like sending a, a curated email. Yeah, and I think even the folks represented on stage exemplify the mix of people who are in podcasting and who they're a podcast movement. So, for instance, uh, there's a journalist named James Cridlin who is English but lives in Australia who puts out a daily uh, newsletter called Pod News. 
And his is really industry news, and it's just bullet point. But if you want to know what's going on right now in podcasting, what are the controversies, what's going on, you read pod news. Um, there's another newsletter called Inside Podcasting, um, written by a person named Sky Pillsbury. Um, and this one is sort of, it does definitely have that news element to it. Although Sky goes out of their way to to look for stories that maybe aren't getting as much coverage, looking for podcasters or new podcast companies or collectives that aren't getting as much coverage and to sort of highlight those and give them a little bit more coverage, but definitely still in a sort of like news digest kind of way where each edition has like five or six stories that are 50, 60 words and then, you know, tells you where else to go look. But then there's also the Bellow Collective, which is a collective of people who write podcast reviews. And so each edition of their newsletter is about podcasts they think you should you should listen to with a real focus on underrepresented voices. Mm. So they're less interested in reviewing uh, the newest podcast that comes from a major studio and more interested in finding podcasts that you haven't heard of by somebody who deserves some attention, right? Really helping with that discovery, but doing so through reviewing. Um, a similar one is one called Podcast Gumbo by uh, a person named Paul Kondo, who also works with the Association of, of Independence and Radio. And then another person named Will Air. Williams. Yeah, Air, who uh, has a website called Will Williams Reviews. They also focus on reviewing shows and exposing shows that maybe people haven't heard of, right? Rather than re- reviewing um, the the podcast, you know, another edition of Serial or reviewing, you know, another edition of This American Life. Whatever WNYC mm-hmm. has uh, and that's And that's not throwing any, any shade on the larger shows so much as that they've already to, got a boost. They they've already, already got a boost, they right? They already have a network effect with their audiences and uh, – a platform that people are showing up to to find out new things about. So know. I enjoyed hearing about that sort of wide range of people who are trying to really uh, explore and promote a wide range of podcasts, right? And 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 definitely, I would say the shout outs to the communitarian spirit and yeah. and the real grassroots of podcasting were very strong there. Um, and it was a very full room. People were very interested in hearing more. I subscribed to many of these. I'm subscribing to the rest of them now. I just have um, so that I can links you know, in the show notes. I imagine we will have links yeah. in the show notes at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Uh, at least a couple of the folks behind the Bellow Collective also are behind the Preserve This Podcast project. Um, which is a project uh, that received some grant funding. Paul just held up a zine, a zine that he has in his hands, by the way, listeners. That Ooh. you can download. A nice-looking uh, color-covered uh, yeah. zine about, um, about, the, about the ideas that you should put in your brain if you are a podcast producer to, um, to, to ensure that uh, if something were to go catastrophically wrong with one particular website, perhaps, or one particular laptop computer, that your podcast would still live on into the future. It's not... And, and maybe live on even if you quit podcasting. Yeah, just because just you uploaded it one place or uh, have it on one hard drive mm-hmm. uh, does not mean you've done the work to preserve your podcast for the future. So after the session, the, the person representing uh, the Bellow Collective, uh, their name is Dana Gerber-Margie. And I talked with them a little bit about this. Uh, they're actually cited in Madison, Wisconsin, working for the University of Wisconsin. Um, and uh, really hope to have them and their project on Radio Survivor in the near future. 
but it was good to sort of wrap in this idea that there are folks, you know, librarians and yeah. archivists, and and, and uh, Dana is an archivist, um, and podcasters thinking about, oh, you yeah. know, there's all this great work going on, but, you know, in, in the spirit of the Radio Preservation Task Force, which we talked about at the top of the hour, it's now is the time to think about preserving these podcasts, not uh, celebrating the 100th anniversary of podcasting, right? In 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 twenty in, in twenty one oh five. I was wondering where you were be. gonna put it. Yeah. Yeah, twenty one oh three. Eighty years from now basically, right? Yeah, exactly. So um uh, Yeah, that was definitely I went to a panel at the last Radio Preservation Task Force conference that, that talked a lot about digital yeah. Digital audio and how a lot of it is already lost. Mm-hmm. So it this is definitely of utmost concern to everybody Trans- creating digital content. Put it on cassettes and transcribe it on the <laughs> 78 records. Well, and also, That's right. you know, Jennifer, I've learned through your work uh, that you've told, they've talked about here on Radio Survivor that um, a lot of the early history of podcasting actually was a lot more of a, uh, a woman-oriented. There were women's voices making radio, making that internet radio in the early days. Uh, these pathfinders. Right, pathfinders, yes. Who was not, uh, who was not, who was not celebrated. Right, and... A lot of the a lot of their internet radio work sort of slipped through the cracks and was forgotten, and then other individuals came along and made other podcasts. And oftentimes now, when histories have been written about, well, who was the first podcaster doing dot dot dot? A lot of these uh, early voices were were left out, uh, and not intentionally, not 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 by design, just because you know we need these we need these things preserved to know that they used to exist. Right. Yeah. And and who's writing the history or the herstory? That's a big question. Patriarchy always looming behind us. Exactly. Paul, I'm curious with 3000 podcasters at Podcast Movement, is it getting to the point or maybe it already has gotten to the point where you're seeing more specialized podcasting conferences for different constituencies? There are. We're definitely seeing that. And and I think it's still a very early stage. You know, some of them are kind of regional. We've seen a few that have happened, uh, you know, that are, are focused on maybe, say, a, a particular city or something like that. I know there was recently one in Nashville whose name I cannot come up with. I apologize. Um, Eric and I went to something called PodCon. Uh, which was held in Seattle, put on uh, by the McElroy brothers and some special, other podcasters. You know, I have to mention now, just uh, out of the blue, that uh, my middle school uh, friend and uh, son is listening without stopping to every single McElroy brother Dungeons and Dragons podcast that they've ever. What recorded. is the name of their uh, Dungeons uh, and Dungeons Dra- Dungeons and Dragons Adventure podcast? Zone, Adventure Zone, right? Uh, and, and so. This particular individual who I'm very close with, everyone should know, is a uh, active listener, a discerning audience member. And so the fact that they're into the Adventure Zone in the way that they are into the Adventure Zone, and from what I've heard, because I haven't listened to any of these uh, Dungeons & Dragons episodes, um, it's really intense. So the point being that their fan community... Oh yeah, the people that like it's these committed. these uh, you see many shows. adventure zone T shirts at yeah. at uh, podcast and not, and uh, and they happen to be a group of people that produce a number of podcasts. Number so of we different. went to uh, 
a podcast festival that they had. Yeah, they had two of those. Um, in and, and Seattle, and, and, Washington, and the focus was a bit more on on fiction and right. adventure style podcasts and, and and comedy to some extent. That they do a show called My Brother, My Brother and Me, which is you know a, a chat show, but they're all very good at it. It's a, a funny show. Um, you know, I think that we're starting to see that, you know, definitely now there, I know there is like a, a podcast, uh, convention that's really focused much more on the folks who are really about entrepreneurism and making money. Right. So it's really, there's no tracks for people who want to talk about interviewing, at least, uh, interviewing as an art or no, no tracks about sort of audio fiction, but it really folks who really want to use podcasting as part of their, uh, business strategy that's coming about. Um, you know, I think it, we'll see, right? In the same way that, you know, with, with radio, there are different conventions. You certainly have the National Association of Broadcasters. You have the National Association of Broadcasters radio show and the Radio Advertising Bureau show. But then we have the Grassroots Radio Conference. We have the National Federation of Community Broadcasters Conference. And these are just things in, in the United States. There are others, of course, around the world. And I know that there is many developing conferences around podcasting in the U.K., and in Europe and in Australia. So I do think we'll start to see this sort of um, specialization. And I don't, I don't predict that the specialized ones will splinter off uh, having a big one. Because some, to some extent, there's a real value in people who come from disparate backgrounds, disparate, who do disparate shows or in disparate networks or have disparate ideas to come together. I think that's actually really healthy for people who have different objectives to meet each other and have a chance to talk and learn from each other. So I hope that that continues to be the case while I also see the value for folks who are working in, in fiction or in uh, documentary to have an opportunity yeah. to come together and, and hyper-focus on the thing that they share in common. Yeah. It's, I mean, it seems like a place where people who, who do radio certain kinds of radio might also get a lot out of some of the sessions. So. That's why they have the radio to podcaster uh, track, you yeah. know, where, where uh, folks from commercial broadcast stations as well as commercial broadcast groups from around the country were, were all there. Also saw representatives of the CBC in Canada and the BBC, um, you know, because the United States, you know, is so huge and as such uh, an economic and cultural footprint in the world, um, especially in the English speaking world, folks travel from, other English-speaking countries in particular, although quite a few people, I, I also met quite a few people from Latin America as well, and mm. there was quite a bit of discussion about uh, Spanish language podcasting in particular. So oh, yeah. it, it is it is becoming global, and of course, you if know, I, having if I could wave a magic wand and just turn Radio Survivor into a Spanish language Radio <laughs> Survivor, I would do so. absolutely. And inciting the conference, at least this year, in a place like Orlando, Florida, makes it much more accessible to people coming from Latin America wonder, is due it, to geography. Would it derail us entirely to talk about how weird it is that the BBC doesn't own the world of podcasting since they've really created some of the most amazing... It would be a total derailment. Yeah, but I, that's it's, all I want to do now. <laughs> I'm just be, bringing it up and uh, leaving it, letting it go. I think it's a total derailment to, to <laughs> untangle that but mess. the But the, the comedy that was generated... Uh, at that radio network, which is not available for time shift. Uh, so you mean you know, like the the comedy dramas or you know all the good radio stuff. drama that, that so the BBC much has produced over the years? Whether it's like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series or any number of other series that I can't come up with. There's a lot of fan. There's a lot of fan stuff too, going where people who've had successful television shows where Netflix watchers can watch their shows mm -hmm. or, or Amazon. Prime the BBC members. is more greatly restricted. Yeah. 
because of the fact that it is funded directly by a tax on UK residents, right. which is not the case for uh, so many other broadcasting lot. services, including NPR and the CBC. Hey, I'm thinking and, about the mighty Boosh guys made made great radio, and you know the um, the 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 flight of the Concords guys made great radio, and all of that is only available if you buy it or if you steal it. But it's not, or if you're a UK resident. Yeah. Oh, that's that's the the thing that I wasn't aware of. Or, or if you move to the UK. Yeah, anyway. and, yeah, but anyway, it's kind of they should have owned podcasts. It's a rat hole. <laughs> um, you know, sort of the last thing I wanted to point out. You know, there is, is impossible to encapsulate. That's why I'm trying to kind of give these highlights and things that I think are uh, indicators of where podcasting is going. Which is basically it is growing, but in that growth, what that also means is that it's becoming more inclusive and expansive with regard, I think, to the folks who are uh, making it, the folks who are listening. And the kind of topics and things that are being done. And I think we're seeing pathfinders here, uh, finding new paths and new topics and new ways of, of doing the art. Um, one of the last keynotes I saw was Guy Raz, who is a former NPR correspondent, former NPR Weekend Edition host, I think. Um, he now is exclusively a podcaster. Mm. He is the host of the TED Radio Hour. Like when, people, when people think a successful podcaster in a nice suit. Yes. They think Guy Raz. They think Guy Raz. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And nice... When the New York Times writes a glowing profile of a successful podcaster who makes a living with his podcasting, it's uh, it's Guy Raz whose face you see. Exactly. In the New York and Times. I think, you know, and, 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 you know, I think a lot of people, when I talk to people, a lot of people were very excited to see him. They really look up to him. Yeah. Um, he created a show called How I Built This, which is an exclusively an NPR, NPR podcast. Mm. So it is not itself a radio show. Um, and you know, what he, what he said was, you know, it was something he'd always wanted to do, but he knew it wasn't quite right for the radio. And in some ways he felt at the beginning when he was putting it together, he was way out in the sticks. Like he was way out on the periphery at NPR because he's making something. He was no longer interested in making something for the air. Hmm. He wanted to make something for podcasts. And of course it's, it's been very successful. Um, you know, and it's a real Horatio Alger podcast. I don't know about Horatio I Alger. Right? That's I think that would be stretching it a lot. But I, think, I don't. I don't know anything about it. I don't listen to it. I just know that uh, he talks to successful business people. Yeah, he his, talks to successful business people, nonprofit leaders, etc. Um, I was I was making a joke that the podcast itself was a real pull yourself up by your bootstraps story. I, I don't think so. Not when Paul's, I've listened Paul's to it. Making a face. Yeah, I don't think so. I think it's actually pretty measured, and he really does bring his skills as a journalist to bear, yeah. and does not go for pat. It, it's not uh, rah rah. There you go. I read one New York Times article about it. Yeah, but it is going to be far more mainstream and capitalist than what you might expect from your average community radio station. Let me not, uh, you know, shy away from from that encapsulation. It is what it is. Um, but what I enjoyed hearing from him, however, was. You know, he was asked to give some advice for podcasters, and I he did not give easy and pat advice, mm. which I appreciated. And he didn't just simply say, you know, just keep at it and grow your audience and you'll be wonderful. He really said, you know, one thing, he, a quote he made is like, I would take 5,000 podcast listeners over 100,000 Twitter followers and really double down on the idea that every listener is important, which is something we, we've talked about quite a bit here and I think is very much the spirit of community radio. And it's nice to hear somebody who 
at this point could take advantage of millions of listeners, but who is still really trying to think about it at that level of there's a single person every time who has decided to listen to your show, take that hour out of yeah. their day, and that you need to you need to honor that time. And he spoke very closely about that. You need you know that is the time you need to honor it. And you know he has the resources to to greatly hone what it is they do every week. Um, he said they have an army of fact checkers and they find something's wrong. They cut it out. That's great. Um, not everyone has that army and I don't think you have to have that, but he, he put it in the form of like, we want to make sure that what we're serving up uh, merits the time that you dedicate to it. And he also talked about, look, you know, the thing that really matters as a podcaster is defining who you want to reach. And then you have to decide, decide for yourself what does success look like. And don't make it what someone else thinks success looks like. And I really appreciate that advice from somebody who has prominence, right? And who all these podcasters look up to saying that as opposed to being out there and giving them a get rich quick speech, right? right? Which is generally not what you hear on stage at at, at Podcast Movement. But um, nevertheless, I appreciated hearing that. and, And it sort of jives a lot with the way we've talked about podcasting here. Yeah, it's not always about quantifying things, which is great. Yeah, exactly. Um, one last story I wanted to talk about a little bit um, is that there's a bit of a controversy in podcasting that's cropped up in the last week. Uh, allegations of plagiarism against a very prominent true crime prod podcast. Um, the podcast is called Crime Junkie. Right. And, and again, for, for some outsiders or for newbies, uh, the true crime genre is a real... Uh, it's a it's one of the places where professionalism in podcasting where where you know where where people ha- they're making money take a, yeah and they, and they and they invest a little bit like they they try to hire they hire producers and they hire but but different or there's a lot of them as what's well. happened is a lot of these lot. shows are people who were amateurs and due to the uh, success of their shows have turned into professionals mm-hmm. I think right is really what one of the the dynamics that has I guess happened the point here. is there's a lot of true crime podcasts out there and a whole lot of them are are small businesses small to medium-sized businesses that, that they've turned into correct yeah, I little think that's media a good organizations um but a a uh and they need content they need facts and material to continue to create their shows they need to know it's true crime and it's this not is fiction not crime. a mere this is not just an insular podcasting story this showed up in the new york times yeah. the other day uh, where a journalist named Kathy Fry, who works for the Arkansas Demogra- Democrat Gazette, uh, said that basically they found uh, a lot of facts and near verbatim verbiage that could have only have come from their coverage of a particular crime inside of this podcast. A newspaper reporter had their work. Yeah. stolen they allege yeah. they allege <laughs> we want to be sure that we're that we they allege and <laughs> thank you for that and i am not interested in the particular case here right um so much as i think it's a, it's a great example for us to give a little bit of advice to people to podcasters and to community broadcasters and community podcasters here right um because this is a case in which sometimes journalism training is helpful yeah. knowing the difference between what is a fact. You can't copyright a fact. The fact that there's you know 360 million people in the United States is not copyrightable, but a sentence about that and an interpretation of that yeah. is copyrightable, and that therein, besides just the law, there is ethics, 
right? It's nice to say where your source was, even if you legally are not required to. Exactly. It shows, it shows that you care about other people. Well, right. And also, you know, say in scholarship, right? You know, when you write a paper, uh, you're expected to cite much more than what you do, say, as a journalist. Uh, you know, so you may cite actually where a fact comes from, which you might not necessarily cite in 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 journalism, especially if it's if it's a fact that's well well known and easily obtainable. Um, but it's partly it's a service to your listener and a service to your reader because now they know and they can follow the trail. If they wish to explore more on their own, they know where to go. If they wish to question your facts or your conclusions, they know where to go. And in podcasting, right, in its discursive medium, you know, we're talking here. It's very real time. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes you don't always have the ability to kind of footnote live. I heard somewhere. If only if only I could remember where I heard it from. But here's here's what I remember. And then I say it out loud with my voice. Yeah, exactly. And that's why we utilize, we talk about all the time our show notes as we try to put our references in there yeah. so that you know what we're talking about, who we're talking about, where you can learn more. If we're talking about a story in the New York Times, which I just mentioned, um, we'll have a link to it in our show notes. And, you know, this is something where it's, I want to sort of encourage people to think about when they're, when you're doing this. When I was in college radio, we did news at the top of every hour and we had uh, what we called Rip and Read, which literally was a printer that printed out news stories all day from the uh, United Press Syndicate, or UPI, United Press International. And those we had licensed. We were permitted to read that stuff verbatim on the radio because we literally licensed it. We also would have copies of the local newspaper in the newsroom. And we were told, you may not read this verbatim. So, for instance, if you had heard that the governor uh, was making a particular speech that day, uh, we want to tell people about it. We could say, look, the governor's making this speech. But if we wanted to say more, we would say, as the Trenton Times reports, Governor Florio said X, Y, and Z. I'm dating myself there if anyone's from New Jersey. Um, and, and it's important to make that distinction because we didn't have an agreement with the Trenton Times to read their stuff on the air. But we could cite them as a source. The internet is so – it's the wild west of stealing content in a, in a lot of ways. And so some podcasters – And I don't want to accuse anyone of stealing content here. I, think, I want to be very careful about this. I sure. Think- well, I, I mean I'm not uh, accusing individuals of doing it, but I happen to have heard podcasts where they're obviously reading – Mm-hmm. Something that they didn't themselves write, well, I, and they and don't I want tell to say, us who they're, what, where they're reading. And from. I want to say that a lot of that is naive. Yeah, I, I would like to give people the benefit of the doubt, right? That in many cases, because podcasts come out of this, one of their origins is people who are just sitting around talking and happen to record it, and yeah. that's very casual, right? And there's a casualness about it, and. We forget that while it's casual, it is still recorded for posterity and anyone can access it. And, you know, where there's a podcast that has 200, 300 listeners, no one's maybe ever going to notice the fact that you're not citing your sources. Also in the very near future, if not the uh, very recent uh, present uh, all the transcribes, the transcription of this of our voices May might just be happen automatically made available on Google and searchable, right? And you might have to opt out, or who knows if you'll even have. That's a fascinating. That's a whole. Oh yeah, question. and then yeah, yeah then e- people can easily see if you're 
reading somebody's work without their permission. Mm-hmm. It's all there in writing. Exactly. Um, you know, and I can see how it can very easily go from this sort of very casualness to now you have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of listeners and what you do propagates much more rapidly and much farther away than you expected, which means also then uh, people's expectations of you the and your liabilities go up. Um, and I don't, you know, and again, it's not only the legal liabilities, you know, the existence of copyright law, but I think it's also about being an ethical player uh, within within the uh, the whole sphere and doing service to your listeners, doing service for your listeners, making sure that folks, um, you know, get get as much of the picture as they can. You know, um, we have read things verbatim here on on radio survivor typically very short and we really try very hard to make sure that uh everyone knows what it is we're reading from and if you are a podcaster or community broadcaster and you haven't thought about this and how it relates to what you do you should think about it and certainly if you're at a station the liability is greater than yourself it includes your station um, if you're a podcaster and maybe you're working with other people, you'll share that liability. But also it's a matter of thinking from your own standpoint. It's a little bit of a golden rule, I think. How would you feel if somebody else used your content without permission? And folks have approached us and said, hey, I would like to use a portion of your show in our podcast or I would like to do, use an excerpt of your podcast on my radio show that I do here and there. Uh, generally speaking, we give permission. But the fact is we do ask that you ask us first and that we have the right to say uh, yes or no um, because it, it may or may not be appropriate uh, as as things go. And in the same way, uh, we are careful about uh, in the very few times when we've played audio that's sourced not from Radio Survivor, we've been careful to get those permissions, which includes conversations we've had about archives. where we've talked with archivists and we've had the conversation about a piece of audio we might want to play that came from, you know, a community radio station in 1965 that even when we play it, you know, is this something which in the archive, do they have, does the archivist have that permission to share it with us? Is it something which has been given over? And especially when we've talked about uh, archives that are kind of personal archives, like uh, people's the music that they've contributed, uh, you know, to an archive. You know, they they've said no, we we don't feel comfortable giving this to you because while the person asked for it to be preserved, they didn't necessarily ask for it to be broadcast on the radio or broadcast in a podcast. So um, I think it's just an interesting case in point. You know, I like to hope and think that if there are podcasts out there who might be um, cutting it a little close or who aren't citing sources that that it's it's only because they haven't really thought about it not because it's uh and not because it's something which someone really intends to to violate someone else's intellectual property rights but it's really because they haven't thought about it and maybe uh time has come by too quickly the same things go of course for writing but I think the the casual nature of podcasting and the way that you do show after show every week and it's easy to yourself as a podcaster broadcaster forget about last week's show right (laughs) um doesn't mean last week's show isn't still out there on a server somewhere and that somebody isn't new listening to it or isn't listening to a show from three years ago today um it is sort of an archive in and of itself so uh that's just what i wanted to kind of 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 mention there um and, and some little advice 
to our broadcasters and podcasters in the audience. Here, here. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, as a scholar, you care. I mean, you know. I mean, no, I do care. I mean, I've had my work stolen repeatedly, and it it infuriates me. And 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 there are websites that claim to have editors that don't have any journalistic integrity. So or or who don't or really aren't trained at all. So they have you know what I hear often is is a, is grave distortions of uh, the notion of fair use which is a, a principle in copyright law that says you may use, uh, quote, basically, uh, other works for the purpose of, uh, for purposes education. like commenting on them, for education, uh, or for parody, um, you know, and, and right. but you, parody. people often take that to mean I can take your whole work outright and put it somewhere else because, well, I'm not charging for it. I'm not making any money, right? This is fair use. Well, no, it's not. I worked in uh, educational media for a lot of years, uh, universities, and uh, services we provided were often, you know, copying things, copying videos uh, for people, or helping them take a, a piece of a video and put it into a like a, a PowerPoint presentation or something like that. And we often had to educate uh, faculty members that they couldn't just we couldn't just digitize that DVD for you and put it up online for your class. And declared as fair use because it's educational, right? That maybe if they wanted to use a clip in class, that was totally cool, but not without uh, getting permission, uh, couldn't put it on their website. <laughs> that sort of thing, um, you know. And and in your work, Jennifer, you've you've specifically had your work uh, at Radio Survivor appropriated, isn't that correct? Well, yeah, I'm thinking about one example where you know an entire article was reprinted without permission, and right by one, and they came back and said. They came back and said, "Well, it says on your site, be be sociable, share." <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, right? So, and, yeah, <laughs> you know, and and there are, um, you know, there's the Creative Commons, which is a uh, optional kind of licensing regime where creators can choose to allow people to use their work to give them sort of an open license to use it in, in prescribed ways without having to obtain permission. Um, so often there's like a share like uh, nonprofit license where if you, someone else can use the work in its total, as long as there's no profit purpose there, but Wik often we'll say you can't modify Wikipedia it. Wikipedia is licensed under creative commons licensing and people that write, for Wikipedia are aware that they're giving their work away for free and uh, it's entirely within the law to read it mm -hmm. and to, to to use it. I'm not sure. I can't remember if it's a, if you're allowed to make a profit off of what you probably is though. Just I mean, that's there's a whole range of licenses. Domains. You can choose the permissions yeah. you wish to give. But anyway, that's just one and weird example. That's interesting. Yeah, I was thinking about that because I have heard radio DJs for example, doing a program where they're talking about some topic and providing biographical information, and it sounds like they're reading it from somewhere, and I assume it's from Wikipedia. Yeah. Uh, and I find that problematic, too, because sometimes things on Wikipedia are actually direct quotes from somewhere else. So often things get removed, which has happened to me, too, where well, my photos a direct have quote, been stolen. You know, I mean, here's the thing. A direct quote, strictly speaking, from copyright law a direct quote through via even via Wikipedia is not necessarily problematic. Ethically speaking, I would call it problematic. You should be citing where it came from. Right. Right. So there, you know, uh, you know, and when I direct quote, I mean, I'm talking like, you know, 
uh, 30 words, you know, some small, you know, portion, uh, not, not a, you know, a page of text, not a, a full blog post or something like that. Um, I think is sort of, you know, and, and there, is, there are no strict like rules from a legal standpoint. There's no one that says a hundred words is good. A hundred one words is too many. Um, right. A lot of it has to do with, are we talking about a novel or are we talking about an article? What portion of it are you using and for what purpose? It's, it's gray uh, because it, on the one hand, it allows there to be uh, creative uses. And on the other hand, um, it still allows people who, who whose work is being used to, to have some say. Um, creative Commons gives you an ability to kind of, as a creator, open it up. We do not actually license our things at radiosurvivor.com by Creative Commons, in part because we had so many problems over the years with people wholesaling, wholesale copying our stuff onto sites that were spammy um, or, right, in the case of the person you were talking about, onto their own website thinking that they could just do it. There was an actual human editor involved, um, you know, and uh, well, in some cases, our work was ending up behind paywalls at mm-hmm. commercial sites, which I find extremely problematic. That well, and it is strictly illegal. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but it's up to, unfortunately up to us to 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 enforce that. Um, you know, and the same thing goes. I mean, a podcast is the same thing. We don't see as much of that uh, in terms of people copying anything we do wholesale, probably because it's not as easy to to do as it is for a, a bot to scrape words off of a web page and put it somewhere else or for someone to do a copy and paste. Um, but right. And, and, you know, and, and certainly again, and there's an ethics to it, I think. And I think that's where I, I prefer to come down because I think that the ethic, there's an ethic to community media. There's a, there's an ethic to what it is we do. Um, and I think if we were, if we are, instead of sort of saying, what can we get away with? You know, what, what is the loophole in the law we can, we, can, we can sort of squeeze our way through? I prefer to say, well, what, what would you like someone to do with your stuff? How would you like to be treated? What is the right way to treat people? Um, I think that that is, is generally the superior way to look at it. Well, thanks again for joining us, Jennifer and Eric. Really appreciate an opportunity for the three of us to be together again. Yeah, thank you so much for listening to everybody and uh, have a good week. 